0: Uh, if you have a Bible with you, you can take it out or turn it on uh, to Ephesians chapter 5. If, if you didn't happen to bring a Bible, you don't have an app for that, we'll have the words projected up uh, here on the screen for you. Uh, quick uh, quick moment of confessions of a preacher uh, for you this morning. Um, so our commitment here at Mosaic Church is to preach the Bible. And so uh, it's no surprise every Sunday I ask you to open a Bible and and, and you're going to hear from, from God's Word. And um, Truth be told, this Monday, Mondays I typically uh, begin to study the passage for the for the following Sunday. Truth be told, this this Monday I, I spent some time studying this passage and and I left it just not wanting to preach it. I did um, just one of those passages that that touch on some sensitive areas that uh, that pastors like to avoid if they can, and so. Part of our commitment to preaching the Bible is that I don't get to pick what I preach. We preach through the Bible. And so next week when you show up and we pick up in verse 22 and I'm talking about marriages, it's not because I know you have a bad marriage. It's because... That's what's next, and so, um, so that's what one of the reasons we believe that that preaching the Bible is good. It's it's a healthy, balanced diet. I I don't get to hop up on my particular lobby uh, hobby horses that I think that you should hear about. I just just preach the Bible. So that's where we're at today. We are in Ephesians chapter five now. Kind of follow up on that. I left uh, S- Saturday's final preparation excited to preach the text. So I didn't, where I started on Monday, I did not end up. I'm very excited about what God has for us in store today. But today we're going to look at Ephesians in the New Testament, chapter 5. I'm going to read beginning in verse 3, and then I'm going to go down through verse 20. I'm going to end right before the section perhaps breaks in your own Bible. So this is the word of the Lord uh, for us this morning. The Apostle Paul writing to the church at Ephesus, writes this. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray and ask him to bless the preaching of it. Father, we come yet again to the text of Scripture with hearts that cannot believe on their own, nor minds that cannot understand on their own, And so, Lord, we ask that by your spirit now that you would soften hearts and open minds and that perhaps even for the first time that you would help people, us, gather together to see Jesus as more beautiful and believable than ever before. And we pray these things in his matchless name. Amen. I have perhaps never felt so American as I did this summer Uh, For those of you that follow the trending current events, you may have heard about Brexit. Right? it was it was uh, when Britain chose to, to leave the United uh, the European nation and so brexit Britain exit they kind of came up with this terminology I've never been so unaware of how American I was when I before I began to understand kind of a, how a, a monarchy system of government works like we just don't operate in those categories the whole the whole qu- king and queen thing and law and, and the United Kingdom it's just it's just not there for Americans so uh, I, I kind of tracked down a little bit of study about how um, monarchies work. And apparently there, there's, there's different levels and layers of, of monarchies and, and rules. Uh, the, the kind of the lower level echelon of, of rule and authority is called a crowned republic. Uh, basically a crowned republic is just symbolic authority. It's kind of just in name. It's not really functioning authoritative. The, the next level up as far as monarchies are concerned are constitutional monarchies. Apparently most modern day monarchies operate in this realm and that's a it's a partial authority okay so there's there's some things that they rule and govern over but not everything so that's the, the constitutional model and then the, the top tier of of monarchy is, is called an absolute monarchy and that's that's completely autocratic and authoritative in power that they rule and all of the laws of the land and, and that's how it's governed as I was kind of reading through some articles trying to grasp how the monarchy works I tracked down a few random and bizarre laws that actually function in the united kingdom let me just throw out a couple just perhaps for your humor today in the in the british law is written the law that in the tower of london there must always be six ravens in it okay so these ravens are always in the tower of london and these aren't just like feathered residents that are just around for the show these are actually sworn in soldiers to the united kingdom okay so there's there's that Um, Another random and bizarre law I discovered was that you are not allowed to beat or shake a rug in the public streets, okay? You can, however, before 8 a.m., take your doormat out to clean it. I don't know, somebody wrote that into law, it still exists. The third one that I was able to track down was that it's illegal to use a television without a license. Now, that might be good for us. Like, we might as Americans consider imposing that. Um, just, just, Just throwing that out there. Here's the the connection I want to make with you this morning, is that when you live in a kingdom, it can influence the way you conduct your lives. When you live in a a monarchy, the, the written law of the land is the written law of your life. And, you know, Christianity makes this great claim that a new king has come on the scene and his name is Jesus. And so Jesus comes as this authoritative king to establish his kingdom on earth. And with that establishment of this new king and this new kingdom come some bizarre things to a watching world. There are some things that will govern our lives as Christians that to a watching world may seem odd. Here's our problem. Our problem is we think that Jesus only has that middle tier of authority. It's partial. It governs areas of our life, but not all of our life. The reality is that Jesus, in coming to establish himself as the king of not only our world but of the cosmos, he's declaring that he's authoritative over everything. That there is nothing in your life that belongs to you when you belong to Christ. And so we're gonna see that that King Jesus addresses some, some areas in the life of believers that we struggle to submit to Jesus in. We do. There are areas that are sensitive and tender to us and that we prefer be left to our own dominion and our own rule and our own authority. Here's the bottom line I want you to see and take away from this passage today is that living in the kingdom of Jesus then, that is the future, means loving the kingship of Jesus now. So living in the kingship of Jesus then, the future, means loving the kingship of Jesus now. Uh, I primarily want to look at three things today. I want us to look at the warning. I want us to look at the awakening. And then I want us, lastly, to look at the walking. So let's consider the warning in verses three to six. Let's, let's just dive right in, really. Um, no, no easing into this. Uh, what areas of our lives is Paul addressing and warning us about? There are three. He's addressing our sexuality. He's addressing our self-centeredness, and he's addressing our speech, okay? I want to I kind of touch on those each briefly. He, he's addressing our sexuality. This is going to be PG-13, but I, I've tamed it down. Um, but it's, uh, it's, it's in the text. If you look at verse 3, it says, but sexual immorality and, and all impurity and covetousness, that's the self-centeredness. But it, he talks about sexual immor- immorality. The word used there in the Greek is the word pornea, okay? Ring, it, ring a bell with anybody, pornea it's where we get our word pornography. And this word was used to cover a wide variety of sexual misconduct, it was. It was, uh, it was it c- covered more than just the physical realm, it c- covered the, the internal and spiritual intimacy, but, but it was a, a, u- a word that was used in that context to just, to just cover this, 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 this Im- immoral and immensely sexual activity that was happening in their context, and, and you'll see it happens in ours too, so it addresses our sexuality. It secondly addresses our self-centeredness. Uh, kind of the words there, impurity and covetousness, they actually go together. So the impurity is actually leading towards the covetousness. And so the word covetousness is this word that is a, a graphic kind of garden variety word to describe the most selfish ways. In other words, it is, it is to show that selfishness to the extreme degree Describing the heart that will do whatever it takes to get what it wants. That's the second thing it's addressing. The third thing it addresses is our our speech. Uh, The particularity of that word is is actually dealing more with the shameful nature of our speech. uh, the Kind of the reputational ripping of speech that we use towards others. Or or maybe this empty jesting about other people and joking. We'll kind of flush that out here in our own context in a minute. So those are the the three large uh, categories that this text is going to address for us today and how Jesus as the king will will come over those. Uh, One of the questions that we need to ask when we're reading the Bible is in its original context, who who is this text for? Because one one of the easy things for us to do is to open our Bibles and to immediately come to our own context and to draw conclusions out of it. And so one of the things that we need to ask of this passage today is who is this warning addressing? Because I think it would be easy for us Christians to open our Bibles and read this and think it's talking about them, right? The world. The actual context is talking about the church. I'll, I'll kind of flesh that out for you in a minute, but the, the, the warning is for unbelievers who are professing to be believers, Okay? So this is within the context of a church. This is people who are saying one thing but acting completely different. He's addressing this, this hypocrisy, this, this veneer of false profession within the church. Here's why we know it's not talking about the world. The primary reason is kind of a general category is that the Bible never tells the church to judge the world. It tells us to judge the church, but it doesn't tell us to judge the world. The job of judging the world is the, is God's job. And so one of the things that the church is called to do is to judge the church. Um, in, a, in a couple of months here, um, actually next month, wow, time's flying by. Next month, we are going to be taking our first uh, membership class. We believe that church membership is a biblical thing to do. And part of that membership class, at the end of it, the class, which I'm hoping many of you will attend, you'll hear more about that later, but the end of the um, membership class, in order to become a member of our church, there are some things you must affirm and vow, you must commit to doing. And one of those questions asks you if you will actively protect the peace and purity of the church. And so the peace part being conflict and the purity part being sin. And that's what this verse is protecting is the purity of the church. That within the professing body that there be a puri- purifying factor to it. Let me, let me bring it, broaden it and kind of bring it into our own lives. Here, here's the application is the warning is for the church, not for the world. Um, persistent and consistent sinning is not to be in the life of the believer. Um, I want to kind of just take each of these categories and use some language and some, even conversational language that, that, that might be familiar to you. Let's, let's address the sexuality thing. Here's what worldliness that comes into the church might sound like. It's just porn, right? At least I'm not really cheating on my wife. It's just a casual thing, it's so available, it's so readily you know, optimal for me. It's just really easy. could sound like that. It sounds like we've been together forever. Everybody else is doing it. We might as well test, kind of do a test run with sexual intimacy before we're married. That, that seems like a wise thing. It's what worldliness that comes into the church sounds like. You see, one of the things, many of the things that Jesus tells us is that that the way of following King Jesus is bizarre, it's really odd. And so pertaining to our sexuality, Jesus affirms that the greatest sense of intimacy is monogamous intimacy between one man and one woman. That is to be forever, until death should separate you. And the greatest level of intimacy is within the context of a marriage. And he even takes it a level further, in case that wasn't uncomfortable enough for you in the culture that we are currently living in and redefining marriage, he takes it even another level further. He drops the barometer to the level of the heart. Jesus would say things like, if a man should lust after a woman in his heart, he commits adultery with her. And so Jesus blows our expectations about the way of his kingdom out of the water. In fact, he makes it darn near impossible, and we'll see how he will redeem us from that. He also redeems us not just from our sexuality, but our self-centeredness. Here's what what that sounds like to you, is that everything that matters is, is about you. All that matters is that you get what you want, and you will do whatever it takes to get it. You will scorch earth and burn people down to get your way. It's the extreme degree of selfishness, But what does Jesus' way of the kingdom tell us? Well, he says that the way to gain your life is to lose it. He says that the way of the follower is to give yourself for others and to consider them more important than yourself. He says that the abundant life is the life that lays itself down for the good of the other. He says that the one who loves their enemy is the one who's following him. His ways are are just honestly bizarre. How about in in our speech? It's just guy talk. It's a little locker room banter. You know, a little racial slur here, racial slur there. Kind of some, just some, you know, some bigotry here a little bit. It's It's just normal. It's just, we're just jesting. It's just talking about it. It's not a big deal. It's what worldliness sounds like when it comes into the church. But what does King Jesus tell us? He tells us that we are to affirm with our voices the inherent worth and value that God has put into every single human being. And that the primarily, primary way of identifying that is through the building up of our speech towards others. You see, the kingdom of Jesus is not for sinless saints. Hear me on that. It's not. He's not laying out this ethic that you can do on your own. The kingdom of Jesus is for redeemed sinners who flee their sin and run to the king. So if God's wrath is moving towards those who persistently and consistently sin, where shall we go? Well, look at verses 7, 7 through 14 as we look at the awakening. Uh, this weekend, kind of got, got excited, had a little free time yesterday, and so uh, decided to conquer our backyard. Um, listen, not to make light of this, but you guys remember, you know when, a, when pictures of a, a tornado comes through a town? You know what that looks like? That's kind of like our backyard, I mean honestly, just on a little bit lower level we don't have that much stuff, but when a when a tornado blows through a town, that's kind of what our yard looks like and Finally, Heather kind of had kind of been dropping some heavy hints for a minute there, just commenting, and so the boys and I decided to go in the backyard and to to get it done uh, just to clean to clean stuff up and the nature of our mess is a lot of broken stuff, just like broken toys like Broken things I've never, I didn't even know belonged to us. They must have come from the wall. Just a, it's just a bunch of brokenness, right? And so I am not a hoarder. Like, I will throw new toys away. I don't care. And so, so we, we begin, we begin the, the trash pile and the, okay, we can keep this, throw it in the bucket pile. So I begin just kind of just throwing stuff in the trash. And before I know it, I'm, I'm kind of in the cleanup zone. And uh, the boys are just sifting through the pile, Right. <laughs> And they're just like, wait a minute, what are we, because they knew what I was doing, they knew this was the the trash pile. And they kept coming up to me, and and they would grab a broken toy, like this broken shovel, it was like a shard, like you could shank somebody with this thing. It was clearly gonna be a weapon at some point. And they, they would come up to me and they would justify and explain how this broken item was still of great use to us. And so they would just, just tell, Dad, this is what we do with this. Here, here's how we play this game. And it goes under the trampoline. And we do." And, I'm, and they just kept explaining away the brokenness. Just, it was just this constant thing. Listen, hiding our own brokenness from God is just like doing that. It's telling God that it's normal. It's what everybody else does. It still works. Like, when I, I'm not one of those people. You know, we, we treat sin. You know how we treat sin? We treat sin like we treat crazy friends. You know what a crazy, anybody had a crazy friend? <laughs> crazy friends are awesome. Like, if you have a crazy friend in your life right now, they are, they are fun. I had, a, I had a crazy friend. I've had a couple. I had a crazy friend in high school. His name's Trent Brining, okay? Crazy guy, fun guy. I don't, think he's, I don't think he listens to our podcast or anything. Trent, if you're listening, I love you, man. But... um. Trent Brining was just this crazy fun friend. It was great to do these things with, like we never committed any felonies together. There might have been misdemeanors involved, but it was just kind of that crazy fun that we had with, you know, you have with your crazy friends. Well, sin is not a crazy friend. Sin is a cruel master. Do you know that? Like the the way the Bible talks about sin is that it will own you. It will get its claws in you and it will consume you. Sin always overpromises and underdelivers. Always, it makes big promises and it never comes through. So you always want more. It's the nature of sin. It's not a crazy friend. It's a cruel master. Um, the work of the Christian, if you're a Christian today, is that by God's Spirit and through His grace, your sin is being put to death. It's a killing activity. It's a war. Uh, some of the Puritans, I don't, there's a couple of you that probably read Puritans. For most of us, we, we put the Puritans down a while ago. But the Puritans, kind of you know, 16th, 17th century, very, very deep, heavy theological works. The, the, the Puritans would use this term called mortification. It's, it's not in our vernacular. Like if any of you came up to me and started talking about mortification, we'd probably need to sit down. But, but I, I want it to be in our vernacular because behind the word mortification is the idea of putting our sin to death. Uh, The Puritan author John Owen would put it this way. He said, be killing sin or it will be killing you. That's the nature of the sin that we're talking about. So where should we flee? Where is the source of refuge for the sinner who's broken and sees it? Well, look at verse 14. It says, therefore it says, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Now there's a little bit of kind of academic and scholarship debate whether this was a quote from the Old Testament or whether this was a verse from an early Christian hymn. Uh, the quote from the Old Testament could be from Isaiah chapter 26 if, you, if you're interested in kind of researching that. I actually lean towards it's actually a verse from a hymn and this hymn would have been sung at the baptism of believers. And so it's this idea that in baptism your sin is dead and you're made alive in Christ and the light has shown on you. You need to know this good news, um, that your primary problem is not to be exposed. It's not to be discovered for who you really are because the gospel actually says you've already been exposed. You've already been condemned. You've already been criticized. And do you know where that happened? On the cross of Christ. Have you ever asked yourself why the death of Jesus had to be so cruel? Why it had to be so agonizing, so vivid, so drawn out. It was an all-day event, so publicized, so shaming. Because on the cross, we were exposed. You see, what the Bible tells us is that Jesus became sin. He became what this text is telling us not to be. He was treated like a sexually immoral person who can't stop clicking on the internet. He was treated like the self-centered person who continually pursues their own good at the cost of everyone around them. He was treated like the person whose speech is so flattering on Sundays and so filthy on Mondays. That's how Jesus was treated on the cross. And so if you want to see yourself exposed, look no further than the cross, my friends. You will never be more exposed and more criticized than you already have been on the cross. And so how can that be good news? Because not only were you exposed and criticized, but then you were justified. That is, God didn't reject you. He accepts you on the basis of what Christ has done for you. So that's where the awakening happens. The awakening happens when you no longer fear exposure, but you do fear rejection. One of the most frightening, in my experience, Bible passage that I've read is in Matthew chapter seven. I'll summarize it, or actually I think we may have it up on the screen, but in Matthew chapter 7, this is towards the end of Jesus' famous Sermon on the Mount, the, the greatest sermon ever preached. And in this chapter, he's addressing believers, and he says this, this is Jesus talking. He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. That is cold rejection. And that is something to fear, that we might come to Jesus on the last day and he might say, depart from me, I never knew you. So how can that be good news for you today? How can you know that you belong to Jesus and you won't be rejected like that? Well, Jesus said it. You'll do the will of the Father. And what's the will of the Father? Well, the will of the Father is that Jesus would rule over your heart. See, exposure that leads to rejection will break you. It will. If your greatest fear is to be discovered and exposed because you feel like you'll be rejected, you are missing the point because it will break you. That's why, the, that's why you don't want to be discovered, right? That is why we polish our lives because we think when we're exposed, we won't be loved. But the gospel tells us that when we're exposed but accepted, you can be fixed. Because again, the gospel's told you you've been exposed. You've been criticized. You've been condemned. You were fully known by God and yet fully loved by him. That's the safest place for you to be. So if God won't reject you, who cares if other people do? That's the greatest place for the Christian to be. You see, the key to putting your sin to death in your life is to know that God has fully known you and fully loved you. And in that moment that you can move from that knowledge of God knowing you and loving you, you can begin to move away from your sin. You can be open to being exposed You can be open to being discovered. So if that's true, if the gospel is true, how can that change everything about the way you live your life now? Well, let's look at the walking in verses 15 down through 20. The Bible tells us primarily to watch two things very closely, your doctrine and your life. It tells you to watch what you believe, that you believe the things that the Bible teaches, and it tells you to watch your life. And the way that the Bible talks about your life is your walk. Ephesians has used it a, a, vari- a number of times. The, the New Testament, the Old Testament, like, use the language of walking. Uh, if you've been around a real seasoned Christian, maybe who's been in the church most of their life, you might hear them ask you like, how's your walk with the Lord? you heard that one before? Like, are you walking with Jesus? And that, in other words, they're asking you, how's your life? Like, how are you doing in the Christian life? Um, I want to give you really kind of just some real takeaway things. I really want this to get practical here at the end. Uh, I'm asking and then answering the question, how can you watch your walk? How, How can you watch your life? The first thing I want to say is I want you to assess your life in the light of eternity. You see, we make immediate decisions based on pleasure and the immediacy of them. That's why we're American. We want things done our way right now. God wants us to do it the long way. He wants us to consider the long view. What's best for eternity? And oftentimes that means denying ourselves and our own immediate pleasure. So assess your life and what you're doing in it in light of eternity, not in light of the immediate pleasure that it might bring you. A second thing that I think you should do to watch your walk is to fill your life with the presence of other people. Do you know where sin grows best? In the dark by itself. It's where sin grows, in the dark and by itself. If you're here today and perhaps there is a sin that is gripping your heart and you cannot seem to rid yourself of it, I would just assuming, making a grand assumption, assume that you are not connected to other believers. You might be here today, that's wonderful, church Sunday is wonderful, but that's not enough for putting sin to death. The primary resource that God has put into your life to put your sin to death is other people. Community is where sin dies. Join a community circle. You've heard us kind of rave about this the past couple weeks. These are our midweek gatherings. This is, this is my commercial. I'll do it every so often. But we, we, we gather during the week in order to be with other people. Okay, okay it's a really low-level kind of thing where we just go into homes and we're doing life together, right? We, we break bread. You know, we, we have conversations. We, we talk a little bit about what we, what we did on Sunday. But this is the greatest resource at least us as a church can offer you to put your sin to death, that you're known by God, you're known by others, and you're fully loved by both. That's where, that's where filling your life with the presence of others can put your sin to death. The last little takeaway I'll, I'll comment on as far as watching your walk, is that you should live your life with gratitude for the gospel. I'll say it until I'm blue in the face, until I die or Jesus comes back. Everything that we do here, at least at this church, is about the gospel. And so if you're looking for, like, a, a methodology or a means to being a better person, we don't offer that for you. I'm sorry. Our primarily, primary role as the local church in our conviction is that we are to show you how bad you are, to bring you to the Savior, and to let you seek refuge in him. That's the good news. The God who's known you and loved you. That's what we do here. That's it. And so we want you to fill your life with that good news and to be around other people who believe that good news. Because when that good news becomes the new narrative of your life, it'll change everything about you. The bad narrative of of your upbringing and your terrible childhood and your parents and the church that burned you and scarred you, all of that can be undone by the good news and when it's at the center. So the the closing question I I just want to leave lingering in the room and lingering in your lives this week is what or who is ruling over your heart and be honest what's ruling your heart because the reality is that most of us are ruling over our own hearts that we may give Jesus partial authority in certain areas we might give him Sunday morning and even that's questionable but the other stuff kind of that's kind of your realm the Bible just doesn't give you that option Jesus came to set up his kingdom and he's setting it up first and foremost in your own heart. That we would be ruled by a God who loves us like this. Living in the kingdom of Jesus then in the future means loving the kingship of Jesus right now in our lives. Let's pray and ask that he would do that for us. Father, sometimes your word can pierce us in all the right ways and push on us in in many uncomfortable ways. And Lord, it's my prayer that you would do that by your spirit today. That you would help us to assess our lives and where we simply won't surrender rule to you. That we may be comfortable with giving you Sunday mornings but not Tuesday evenings. Or we may be comfortable with confessing corporately but certainly not across the board and with people that we know and that we've hurt. So, Lord, I pray that you would work in us, that you would change us, and that you would help us to be putting our sin to death, Lord. Would you do that in our church and for your own glory? And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.